0: Okay, let's pray together and then we're going to begin one of the most exciting mini-series I think I personally have been involved in. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for a great weekend. Thank you that we can be back. And I pray, Lord, that this would be an awesome week in many, many ways. Father, I pray for those of us who are tired or our minds are spinning on a thousand other things that by your Spirit you'd help us to focus and you would say stuff to us that is life-transforming. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. By a pure act of uh, either God's guidance or luck, whichever you want to go with, I am following straight on from what Andy was looking at last week. And we're going to read together now 1 Samuel 16. If you have a Bible, please under the heading, Getting the King Out of the Boy. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, "'Take a heifer with you, and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate.'" Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, "'Do you come in peace?' Samuel replied, "'Yes, in peace I have come to sacrifice to the Lord.'" "'Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me.' Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, "'Surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord.' But the Lord said to Samuel, "'Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him.' The Lord does not look at things as the way man looks at things. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Sharma pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him, we'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, he is the one. Sounds like the Matrix, doesn't it? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Wanted uh, just to remind you of something I said a little while ago. And in fact, the first five minutes of this teaching we have looked at in a different context. So if you have deja vu, you can probably try and figure out when we last looked at it. But do you remember I said I was surfing the channels a while ago trying to find BBC News? And I happened on the Jerry Springer show, which I don't normally watch, to be dead honest with you. But uh, I was intrigued because there was a woman who was giving this young guy total earache. And Springer kind of stepped in between them and separated them, and it became obvious that uh, this was the wife or the partner, this was the husband or or the guy she was living with. And Springer said to the woman, why are you so ticked off with this guy? And she said, look at the guy, he is utterly useless. She says he gets up at 10 o'clock in the morning... He has a bit of breakfast and then he falls asleep in the chair. Then he has lunch. Then he just watches about 350 TV channels through till 6 o'clock at night. Then he has his evening meal. Then he's off to the pub. Then he comes back from the pub and sits watching the TV till 2 a.m. Then he goes to, to bed. You know, he's useless. And this guy's sat there with his head in his hands. And Springer says to him, why do you live like that? And the guy looks up and he says, because I am so depressed. Now, I am not minimizing the complexities of depression. There are many reasons why people get depressed. Some of you, I know, struggle with depression. The Lord bless you. And I'm not imputing what this guy said to you. But I could not think of a lifestyle more designed to make you depressed than the one that he was living. And then I began to think, you know there is a Christian version of what that guy does. There is a Christian way which is not that removed from what he does. So four TV read church services. Four pub read Bible class. And the whole of our life is built around taking in, taking in, taking in, taking in, and then we wonder why we are fed up. We were actually made for action. And the passages that we're going to look at are full of action. I've said this to you before, but uh, let me just remind you that I see you constantly as potentially key players. It was just incredible yesterday morning. I went along to this church near Burnley, Cliverger, and I knew that we had a team going to Woodtop, which is also in Burnley. But I had missed the fact that there were some of our guys going also to the church I went to speak in. So I thought, I'll go to the church, I'll do my 30-minute message or whatever, and then when they're all having tea and coffee, I will say cheerio, I'll go two miles over the hill, and I'll surprise the guys who are at Woodtop. Well, surprise, surprise, there were four of our students, actually, at the church that I was ministering in. And it was awesome, I was so proud of them. I was so proud of them. When they stood up and they introduced themselves and there was Isaac and there was Ian and there was Anna and there was Rebecca and they did a brilliant job. And the, the pastor made a bit of a joke. What do you think about them? And I said, and I really meant this, I am so proud of them because I view you guys and I see the potential in you. You are potentially, underlined potentially, key players in the 21st century church. But I also know... Many of you well enough to know that there's stuff in your life that God has to deal with and you have to own up to and you have to wrestle with so that you will be all that God intends you to be as He lives through you. Well, we're going to do what we've called before a CSI on somebody who is without doubt a key player in the Bible. You know the CSI series? I know most of you have seen it. I've actually never seen it. But some of my friends tell me about it and say, Rob, you need to get a life and watch this because it's fantastic. Because here you have a crime scene and you have the police kind of blunder in, and they notice a dead body and they notice some blood that's been splattered on a wall and that's about all they figure out. And then you get these guys who look like they have uh, come down from the mothership. You look like they're aliens with all of these uh, suits on. And they are now doing some intensive forensic investigation. And they are picking up fibers. And they are noticing not just blood that's on the wall, but they're actually looking at the pattern of the blood drops on the wall. And they're picking up all kinds of DNA stuff. And they are noticing things that would go and pass many other people by at 2,000 feet. Well, we are gonna do a forensic examination of this key player and our key player of course is David David lived as I'm sure Andy told you last week round about a thousand BC David is mentioned specifically by name 935 times in the Old Testament so not just incidents which involve David but he is personally focused on 935 times. He's mentioned 55 times by name in the New Testament. And he is, without any doubt, a key player. So he's around 1000 BC. Spin the video recorder forward 3,000 years to the 21st century All over the world, it doesn't matter where you are, people recognize the star of David. People still know who David was, 3,000 years on. I was interested a little while ago to uh, watch that huge event, Make Poverty History. And it was interesting how that began. It began with a song written by the same people as he ended with. It began and ended with a Beatles song. The last one, I think, was performed by Paul McCartney. And isn't it interesting that I'm thinking, boy, I remember those songs. Now, those songs are from 30 or 40 years ago. And most songs today have a shelf life of about a year. And then we think, oh, who was it? Who sang? It was some boy band. Who was it who sang that? And we think it's awesome when there are songs that are around for 30 or 40 years. Listen, David wrote a song and it is still being sung hundreds of times a day around the world 3,000 years on. And we call it, of course, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And at funerals all around the world, a song written by this key player is still being sung 3,000 years on. So when we call David a key player, we are not exaggerating. But he is a key player who has mega issues to face up to. And this is the passage of his life that we're going to explore. We just read 1 Samuel chapter 16 and there is debate about how old David was when Samuel comes along and anoints him with oil. Now, the the kind of best guesstimate that people come up with is that he was between 12 and maximum 15 years old when he was anointed with oil by Samuel. In other words, just a young boy, a young man. And I'd like you to jot down, please, 2 Samuel 5, verse 4. 2 Samuel 5, verse 4 says, David was 30 years old when he became the king of judah so there is this period in his life anywhere between 18 and 15 years where god has said something to him and god has given him a promise and god has said he is a guy who's a key player but then you have 18 years where quite literally god Puts him through a training program that nearly kills him. And the purpose of that training program is to get the king out of the boy. And so that's our theme, getting the king out of the boy. Now, we've got a short lecture, so I'm going to go really fast. And I want to highlight for you the destinations of this journey. Why are we bothering with this teaching? You know, if this was a business seminar and and you had, or your company had spent large amounts of money on sending you here, you would want to know, why am I here? What am I going to get out of this? What is the purpose of this seminar? Well, I want to suggest to you, this teaching will be valuable to two groups of people. First of all, for those who are in transit to a fantastic destination. In other words, for those who are en route to eternity. There was a guy around years ago called uh, Arthur Blessed. And he was a guy who actually carried a cross, if not right around the world, then certainly across many continents. He had this little wheel on the back of the thing, and he would carry it, and he would be interviewed by the media, and he would preach, and he was a great guy. And Arthur Blessed said one day he was asleep on a plane, And the stewardess woke him and she said to him, Sir, what is your final destination? And he said, I said, Heaven? (laughs) Wish I could think of stuff like that. What's your final destination? My final destination is heaven. Now, all of us who know the Lord, God's walked into our world and he said for us, I've got a great destination for you and it's heaven. But you're going to have to walk on earth through all kinds of problems. Now, some of the stuff that David wrestled with is stuff we will wrestle with en route to heaven. But I think to be more specific, this teaching is going to be especially relevant to those of us who believe God's got a call on our life for ministry, to be a key player to go back home and go back to our churches and go back to our communities and actually be used by God to make an impact. And many of us in our heart long to do that, and we dream of that. And God bless you for dreaming of that, because that's God's desire for you. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be world famous. That does not mean on some history of the 21st century, there's going to be 35 pages on you. Let's be realistic most of us will not even merit a subnote on the history of the 21st century from a, from a big world point of view. But from God's economy, we can be key players. We can be awesome mums. We can be fantastic dads. We can be people who just put in a great day's work and impact the place where we are. But in order for us to operate at maximum effectiveness, God has got to deal with a lot of stuff in our lives. He's got to get the king out of the boy. And some of the stuff he deals with in David's life is going to be very, very helpful to us. So I wanted us to have a look now at the dynamics of this journey. What is some of the stuff going on in and around David that he wrestles with, that he has to deal with, that we also will deal with? And I wanted to flag up three battles that David has. Number one, there is the enemy all around David. If you were to check out in 1 Samuel and through to chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, you would discover 127 times this enemy is mentioned. This enemy, of course, is the Philistines. Let me give you just a few references. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war, and they assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes-Damin. That means blood boundary. They pitched camp at blood boundary between Soko and Ezekiah. And then 1 Samuel 17, verse 4. We're going to look at this, and you know this very well. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. David really stepped up to the plate and was seen by people when he responds to this Philistine enemy who nobody else wanted to take on, called Goliath. And, and, and I just want to flag something up here. Very often, I think, we read these stories in the Old Testament and we view them as stories. We think of them as stuff for Sunday school kids. We think of this, oh, this is a nice story, and, and if we're as old as me, we remember flannel graphs. Or if you've had Angela Mills, you've had those funny little cut-out things that she puts on the overhead projector. And they're stories. These are not stories only. They are great stories but they are historic events in real life where God is crafting a key player. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that one of the first things in David's experience is he fights with this Philistine champion. Or well, 1 Samuel 18, verse 17. Saul said to David, "'Here is my older daughter Mirab; "'I will give her to you in marriage,' Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. If I marry him off to one of my daughters, now he's a prince in Israel. Now it's like he's got a big target on his back. And when he goes into battle, every Philistine he wants to make a name for himself is aiming arrows at David's back. Let the Philistines fight against him. Or 1 Samuel 19, verse 8. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. See, David is a fighter. Let me give you some other references. 1 Samuel 28, verse 4. These are all key verses. Or 1 Samuel 31, verse 1. Or 1 Samuel 31, verses 8 and 9. Now, the Philistines, of course, were an ancient enemy of Israel. They were a people who lived on the coastal strip to the west of Israel but they often would try and move into the land of Israel from the south, and sometimes they would go around and pincer movement would try and get them from the north. They are an ancient enemy who, when Israel was not walking with God, would reclaim territory that Israel had battled over. The, The Philistines actually remind me of why I don't like gardening, I hate gardening. There are certain things I love to do, and there are some things I hate doing, and gardening is one of them. Because you go out and you work really hard in the garden, and you pull up all the weeds, and you do all the stuff, and you mow the grass, and all the rest of it, and then you leave it for four or five weeks or whatever, and you come back, and all the weeds are moving in again. That's why I hate gardening. Well, the Philistines are like this. They are an enemy all around who wouldn't go away, who kept coming back. And when Israel was not walking with God, they beat Israel. I wonder if there are things around you, habits, kind of things you run to, stuff you get into, that when you're not really walking with God, they take over and start to beat you again. Well, David knew all about that. But then there's another enemy. An enemy actually mentioned more than twice as much as the Philistines. And this is an enemy alongside David. And this enemy is King Saul. If the Philistines are mentioned 127 times... Saul is mentioned 307 times, so more than twice as many times as the Philistines. And he is by far the biggest enemy and the biggest problem that David has to struggle with. Saul actually, although he starts out admiring David and liking him, and we're going to read about that in our next lecture, and although he has ambivalent, changing feelings towards David, The the underlying thing that is going on in Saul's heart is hatred of David. And we'll check out why he hates him and all the rest of it. Let me just give you some verses to support that. 1 Samuel 17 and verse 55. This is when David is taking on Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 55. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, O king, I don't know. Well, he soon finds out who David was. Who is that guy? Or 1 Samuel 18, verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang a song that haunted David. Here's what they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Or chapter 18, verse 29. Saul became still more afraid of David, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. That was 18, verse 29. Or 19, verse 10. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Or 1 Samuel 20, verse 33. This is talking about Jonathan, not about David. Jonathan was Saul's son and David's best friend. Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father was intent on killing David. So David has an enemy all around called the Philistines. But David has an enemy alongside him called Saul, who is also a member of the household of faith. Whoa. Can I share something with you? some of your biggest battles and fights and things that keep you awake at night and stuff that screws you up inside will be other Christians. I've been a pastor for 25 years and some of the biggest battles I had as a pastor were not with the world, was actually with people in our church. I was talking at a pastor's meeting about a month ago. They had a breakfast and everybody there, everybody who came, were pastors. And I talked to the guy who arranged the thing. And I says, how's the church going? He says, Robert, it's going fantastic. He said, we have about 300 people coming now. He said, but I stand up on a Sunday morning and I look out at the congregation. He said, and I can see 20 people in our congregation scattered around who want to take me out. They want to get rid of me. He said, and some of the biggest battles I have are some of the dynamics and the agendas and the stuff going on in the church. Well, David knew all about that. This isn't sort of some story. Saul is actually literally trying to take him out. He's trying to kill him. And yet God used that dynamic to develop David to be an awesome king, the way he dealt with a man who was literally trying to kill him. And then there's another enemy, of course, And this is the enemy inside. This is David himself. The Philistines are mentioned 127 times. Saul's mentioned 307 times. David having problems with David is mentioned 400 times. David having problems with David is mentioned 400 times. You know, one of the things that uh, used to actually discourage me when I was about your age is I would read Christian biographies. And I would read about some of these people who God used. And they were so different to me. The stuff they struggled with, the kind of ways they blew it, the areas where they weren't fantastic were never mentioned. And these guys were super saints. And I thought, well, there's very little chance of God using somebody like me, because I'm nothing like that. Well, as I read more honest biographies, I discovered they were nothing like that. I discovered that they had all kinds of quirks to their personality, and all kinds of things that they struggled with. So David could kill Goliath. Of course he could, and we all know about that. But I wonder how many people know that David spends several months with spit running down his beard, doodling on the side of a gatepost in Gath, pretending to be an absolute flake. That's what David does. That's where he gets to. David was a guy who could actually run a protection racket and then be willing not just to kill one man, but to kill an entire community because they weren't willing to pay him for the protection racket he'd been running for them. You all know about David and sleeping with this woman, etc. I mean, David did not have everything together. And some of the stuff that comes out in this period of his life, especially when Saul is putting the, the screws on him, some of the stuff that comes out of the deep places in David that God needed to deal with in order to get the king out of the boy, is tremendously encouraging for me when I feel crummy, And I feel I've made some bad choices. So there are all kinds of dynamics that we're going to view on this journey. With David fighting the Philistines and David dealing with Saul and David struggling with David. Just in the last five minutes, what are some of the discoveries that we're going to make? Well, I think we're going to discover that there were some awesome things about David. There really were. David makes some awesome choices. Some things, you read them in the text, and they almost take your breath away. For instance, we already mentioned this, but he takes on Goliath. Nobody else did. There is not one other man in Israel prepared to step out and, and, and do something and say something about Goliath. Everybody else is talking about a battle, Everybody else is singing about a battle. Everybody else is shouting about a battle. And David goes down and says, me me no see any battle. What battle? You're all talking about it. You're all going on about battles and warfare. I don't see it happening. And David steps up to the plate and kills Goliath. Later on, we're going to see how David is in a cave with his mercenaries, his elite soldiers. And Saul comes in to go to the loo. And David's soldiers are saying to him, what part of this don't you get? I mean, God has has handed him over to you. Kill him. And David says, no, we won't kill him. And David stands against 600 people who want to kill Saul. So he makes a great choice to take Goliath out. He makes an even more courageous choice not to take Saul out. Two chapters further on. And Saul's come with, with some elite soldiers to, to kill David. And God sends this deep sleep on the entire camp. All of Saul's men fall to sleep. Fall asleep, Saul's asleep. And David goes down with Abishai, who was some piece of work. Abishai was a guy, a real fighter. And Abishai has a spear and he stands over Saul. He says, let me at him, just one swing at him, I'll pin him to the floor. God's handed your enemy into your hands. David, why don't you get this? And David says to Abishai, no way. We will not raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. David makes some courageous choices in the passages that we're going to look at. He also makes some awesome creations. Many of of David's Psalms were written during this period. Many of them. And when you, know, when you understand what part of his life the psalm came out of, when you put it in the context that we are looking at, wow, does it make a whole bunch of sense. I'm just going to list for you the psalms that are generally accepted as written during this period of his life, this period we are looking at. So get, get ready to go because there's a whole bunch of them. 7, 11, 12... 13, 56 through 59, so the, all of those, Sixty-three, sixty-four hundred and forty-two and a hundred and forty-three years ago I heard a story of a woman who was a superb singer and she had a trainer who really rated her so one day he took her along to sing before this man who trained I mean really brilliant singers And he said, I want you to listen to her, and I want you to give me your take on her voice. And so she sang, and she sang perfectly. And uh, when she'd finished, the man who was training her went off with the older man. He said, what do you think? And the man said, well, he said, she has a beautiful voice. He said, but you know what? She'll sing better when her heart has been broken. She'll sing better when her heart has been broken. And you just check up the songs around the world that don't have a shelf life of three months or six months. Usually those songs come out of some deep waters that the songwriter passed through in producing them. Isn't it interesting that this period of David's life produces so many awesome creations, so great, so many great songs And then thirdly, and I'm just going to give you the references for this. David made some awesome companions. And when you look at some of the men who came to David, some of the guys who looked at David and there was something about David that inspired them, I want to be part of his army, I want to get to know him, I want to follow him. That's a window into what kind of person David was. Let me just give you the references. I don't have time to look at them. They're fantastic. It's telling you about the three, and it's telling you about the 30, and it's telling you about these men who left everything to follow David. 1 Chronicles 11, 15 through 22. 1 Chronicles 15 through 22. 1 Chronicles 12, verses 1 and 2. 1 Chronicles 12, verse 8, 1 Chronicles 12, 14, and 1 Chronicles 12, verse 22. So there are some things that were awesome about David, and I just want to alert you to something. Sometimes we get into what I've called worm theology. Sometimes we give the impression that until you become a Christian, everything in your life is horrendous. There's nothing in your life of any worth whatsoever. And when you come to Christ, all of that needs throwing on the scrap heap. And it's only what God, by His Spirit, produces in you that is of any value. In my opinion, that is an overemphasis on something that's very important. And we'll look at the very important in a moment. It isn't true that everything in your life is awful. There was stuff in David's life that was awesome. Before God's Spirit ever came on David, he was a fantastic fighter. He was a brave man. He was a warrior, even though he'd never been on a battlefield. And we're going to look at that in our next but one lecture. Don't throw everything on the scrap heap. The stuff in your life that has the potential for God to get hold of it and really use it. Now, how God does that, we're going to look at. So, there was some stuff about David that was awesome, there was also some stuff about David that was awful. There are things in David that are terrible. I personally think that David was a very accomplished liar. Just left to his own devices. He was great at lying. And we're going to see that. It seems to me that much of his life, David had problems with sex. He marries three women in the passages that we are going to look at. And goodness knows how many women on the side he has because there are kids all over the place when you come to the end of his life so there's some stuff about David that is not that great and so I wanted to end this just by reminding you of a word in the New Testament and it's a wonderful word it's the word pure And you can find it all over the place, but you might want to jot down 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, where Paul is reminding Timothy of the purpose of good teaching. The purpose of great teaching. It's not that you have a degree, although degrees are great. Not that you can out-argue somebody else, although knowing what you believe is very important. The purpose of good teaching, according to Paul, is to produce love that flows out of a pure heart. And God's interested in a pure heart. Now, that word pure is used in three ways. First of all, it's used of harvest. In the Greek language, the word pure is used in three ways. It's used of a harvest. And when they, in the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, would gather everything in, they would be bringing the valuable stuff, but they'd always also be bringing in the rubbish, the chaff. And then they had to beat it up. And as they beat it up, they're getting rid of all the rubbish. It's blowing away, and what's left is the valuable So oftentimes, the training program God puts us through feels like we're being beaten up. This isn't fair. This hurts. Why is this happening? And God's saying, because I want to produce in you a pure heart. That's my purpose. I want to get rid of the rubbish in your life. The word pure is secondly used of precious metals. Metals that have gone through the fire and all of the rubbish has floated to the surface it's been brought from deep within the mix it's come to the surface it's been skimmed off so now you have gold or silver or something that's really precious and interestingly enough the word pure is also used of soldiers in the Greek language I'm told in the United Kingdom for every hundred people who apply to join the SAS, the Special Air Services, the elite soldiers of the British Army, for every hundred, once you've gone through all of the training programs, there will be about five who make it. And we've put these guys through agony so that what comes out the other side is the real thing. Well, that's what our series of lectures this week are all about getting the king out of the boy. God dealing with this guy in a very painful way so that he fulfilled his potential and became a key player. And you're not going to have to work hard to connect with this. We're going to have to work very hard not to connect with this. 22-11. Let's take a 20-minute break and then get ready to rumble.